This is uh, Paul Schneiderman today on the 141st edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. My special guest today is Sean Scott. Sean is the author of a new book. It's getting a lot of publicity about the Seattle sports team entitled Heartbreak City, Seattle Sports and the Unmet Promise, Unmet Promise of Urban Progress. And I got to tell you, Sean, you and the listeners, something I think I already shared this with you. I tried to buy the book yesterday at the University Bookstore in Seattle. It was already sold out. So uh, I had a chance to read it yet, but I look forward to reading it. Excellent. That uh, it makes me feel good to hear that uh, folks are excited about it and getting it from you bookstore. Uh, but I'm sorry to hear that that uh, cost you uh, a crack at it. Um, well, I'll learn more about it today from you. And I, I haven't interviewed, I think as I shared with you in one of our uh, text messages, I haven't, inter- I haven't read every book of every author I've interviewed before I interviewed them. But Anyhow, uh, Sean, I'll get back to you in a minute. My podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbean. You go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net. I encourage my listeners to click the like button. You can also watch my shows by just Googling YouTube Sports Untold. You can see some of my additions. Uh, my producer is Olivia Coyne. been friends with Olivia's family a long time, and Olivia's a UW student. She's doing a good job. Okay, Mr. Scott, let me get back to you. Uh Sean Scott is an author, activist, and filmmaker. Uh, he's a one-time Seattle City Council candidate. Uh, I think you have a New York City tie, too, don't you, Sean? I was born in New York City, actually. Born in Queens, came out here when I was about uh, nine or ten years old. Gotcha. And uh, Sean's writings have been in Sports Illustrated, The Guardian, all sorts of other publications. We'll learn more about Sean a bit today, but the main focus will be about Sean's new book on the Seattle sports scene, Sean's doing all sorts of interviews right now. He's going to be speaking soon at the Seattle Central Library and Museum of History and Industry. And uh, Sean, I appreciate you stopping by and uh, coming on the Sports Untold podcast as well, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My honor. My honor. Well, Sean, why don't you kind of tell us about how you got the bug to write this book, Heartbreak City, about Seattle sports? Well, Heartbreak City was written at a time when so much of our uh, civic life, um, our private lives really were in a state of upheaval as a result of uh, quarantine and the COVID-19 pandemic. It was written, researched, conceived uh, starting 2020 through 2021, 2022, <clears throat> earlier on this year. And I, I knew that I wanted to write a book about a subject that um, I could t- I could speak about and talk about and be passionate about at any time of day. Um, and those two interests for me were Seattle politics and Seattle sports. So I knew that, um, you know, this is really a, a kind of a story about um, the search for civic connection, um, such as the kind a lot of us were denied during quarantine and during the disruptions of the last couple of years. Um, and understanding that our sports in a lot of ways um, have a way of kind of um, simulating our uh, politics and what we can't get out of our politics, the unity that we have a hard time achieving through our politics, uh, we tend to seek in our in our games. Uh, so that was really kind of the the genesis of the the book project and and the idea. Um, and so just really excited to be able to to speak with folks about it after working on it for so many years. Um, you know, in in relative isolation, ferreting in and out of archives, trying to piece it together in libraries and alone, as anybody who's done a you know any extensive writing knows that a lot of it happens 
and relative isolation. So it's it's good to be out um, speaking with folks like you who care enough about the topic to want to delve deep and uh, and and chat about it. So thank you so much. Well, absolutely. Well, uh, the show is Sports Untold, and I, I I like to focus on all sorts of sports issues, including the sociological and political aspects and legal issues involving sports. So I always learn something from an author when I ask this question. And I'm going to ask you a question about how you got the title of the book. How did you come up with the title of the book? Is Heartbreak City, Seattle Sports, and the MF Promise of Urban Progress. Tell us how you come up with came up with the title. And what is the unmet promise of urban progress with Seattle Sports? Well, it, as best as I remember it, uh, I was paging through a book that was written by uh, an, an athletics, a mental health specialist named Trevor Moad. Uh, and Trevor Moad was uh, somebody who actually passed away recently, uh, was Russell Wilson's um, kind of go-to um, a mental health guru. And in the pages of that book, uh, the foreword of which, the foreword for which was written by Russell Wilson, um, he had this really, this quote that kind of resonated with me. It, it said something to the impact of, if you're not willing to risk a little bit of heartbreak, you're never really going to be able to achieve uh, what it is that you set out to do, because anything that's worth doing is going to contain certain setbacks. Um, it's going to really test your resolve. And I found that that was a quote that resonated quite a lot, not just on the athletic pursuit side of it, but also on the political side of it. Now, when we talk about what the unmet promise of urban progress is, uh, we look at a city like Seattle, which is certainly one of the more uh, progressive uh, seeming, if not progressive, uh, actually metropolises in the country, um, a state that, you know, votes uh, reliably for the, the Democratic uh, candidate for president, or at least has done so since about 1984, um, a city that um, is really, you know, with, with games like the Seattle or teams like the Seattle Sounders, sports heroes like Sue Bird, um, is seen anyway on the forefront of sort of social inclusivity. But we also know that there are a good many problems that have not been addressed uh, to the fullest extent that they could. Uh, in, racial integration is still a very bumpy and incomplete uh, road in the city of Seattle. Uh, huge wealth disparities are still uh, a fact of life here. Um, and so the unmet promise of urban progress is really, it's just about that, that durative struggle uh, to make Seattle the progressive city that many believe it is. And the understanding that if we're not going to actually make the attempt to do it out of uh, fear of falling short, we're definitely never going to get there regardless. So that's that's kind of where the uh, the title uh, comes from. Well, thanks for sharing that, Sean. Now, I this is sort of a, you mentioned something where I was going to ask this question later, but I ask it now. How is Seattle as a sports town different than, say, other cities, such as New York or L.A. or Kansas City or Phoenix or Minneapolis. How, how is Seattle unique and different as a pro sports city versus some other aforementioned towns that I just mentioned? You know, I really tried to write a book that emphasized actually more commonality with many other cities, because I think that Seattle being as far west as it is and uh, it, us being a Pacific Coast city, uh, there's a there's a tendency to sort of buy into a sense of exceptionalism, which I think that uh, is definitely part of our national mythology. Um, I would say that to the extent that there are differences from some of the other cities that you mentioned, 
I think that um, really kind of the combination of of dense urban infrastructure running right up against um, running right up against sort of appreciation for the outdoors, you know, tall mountains, uh, deep water and tall trees. Uh, really kind of the, the tension between those two kind of defines uh, life in the city of Seattle. Um, so I think that, you know, though we are on the far left coast, in a lot of ways, we are at the center of certain myths and ideas that uh, people have been telling themselves about hard work and self-reliance and individual grit uh, since the founding of, of the Republic in many ways. So I emphasize, I try to emphasize the, the continuity a lot more than I emphasize, emphasize the uh, divergence from other cities, I would say. Would you say that some of those other cities, and there's, I could mention probably 30 more or whatever, other American cities also are in a situation where there's an unmet promise of urban progress that connects with sports? I would definitely say so. I think that um, the history of displacement of so many uh, great American ballparks, the uh, expenditure of public funds on uh, great uh, sports facilities, the uh, sort of use of um, uh, sports symbolism as sort of a, a guise of racial uh, progress and lieu of actual economic and racial equity. Those are facts of life in many, many cities like Seattle. Um, and I certainly focus on those in Seattle, but I think that there are certain trends that definitely transcend our individual city. A lot of stuff there. And I want to ask you something else about your journey as a sports fan and as a person. I read that when you were younger, you became a fan of Kendall Gill, who played for the Seattle Supersonics. I was a Kendall Gill fan. He played for the Sonics in the about the mid-90s era. And he was a very fun Sonics player to watch. And Kendall apparently had some mental health issues that he was facing when he played for the Sonics. Kind of tell us about how Kendall Gill and his mental health issues sort of affected you as a sports fan and, and as part of your growing up years. <laughs> Absolutely. I tell you what, I remember really vividly, this was the spring of 1995 when uh, Kendall Gill um, on the 1994-95 uh, Seattle Sonics, um, a starting shooting guard, if I if I remember correctly, uh, was diagnosed with depression. And that diagnosis was made public. Uh, Kendall Gill did not earn a lot of fans as a result of that diagnosis. Uh, he was pilloried in local media. Uh, the question was asked if Kendall Gill was averaging 25 points a game and dishing out 12 assists, would we be hearing about um, about his depression? Um, I, I remember my dad calling into KGR 950 um, to push back against a radio show host that was uh, sort of leading the charge and ridiculing Kendall Gill for this uh, mental health diagnosis. And it just makes me think of how far we have come in our understanding of uh, not just mental health, but also labor rights in the city and in this country. Uh, you look at Seahawks games these days and you see Tyler Lockett, uh, one of the most accomplished wide receivers in uh, franchise history, with the Seahawks doing spots about mental health, doing spots about his own individual struggle with depression, um, making it known that uh, grappling with self-doubt, grappling with low self-esteem does not make you less of a, a man in this arena, this pop culture arena that uh, valorizes um, great able-bodied men who are able to execute, um, you know, dramatic physical feats. Uh, 
uh, it took quite a lot of bravery for uh, Tyler Lockett to come out and really cut against a grain um, that only, you know, a few short years earlier in the grand scope of human history, 20, 25 years is nothing. Um, you know, and, and right here in the same city, uh, players like Kendall Gill had had been um, ostracized for. So it makes me, you know, kind of optimistic to see the progress, at least on the discourse on that topic. Now, our politics have quite a way to go to actually follow up with um, or to catch up with where uh, the conversation is around labor rights in this in the city. But uh, certainly a source of optimism when you sort of compare where Tyler is at now with where Kendall was uh, in 1995. You know, I'll tell you, so I was in law school at the time when Kendall Gill was playing for the Sonics at 94-95 era. I remember talking to some sports fans, like, he's such a cool, studly guy. What, what, Why is Kendall upset? What's his problem? But you go back, fast forward about three decades, I think people do have a little more understanding of mental health issues now. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to kind of um, learn a little more about your, your Kendall Gill experiences as a Kendall Gill fan, how it sort of ties into where, where you are now as a, as a sports fan. Mm -hmm. um, I had a question from a friend of mine, an attorney friend, and I want to tie this in, this question in the general topic of segregation. When did Seattle high school sports become integrated? When did Seattle high school sports become integrated? I would have to say it could not have been a too much earlier than the actual effort to institute integration in our schools, which began in earnest with the uh, busing uh, mandate uh, that uh, that was uh, implemented in, I believe it was 1978. Uh, at that time, Seattle schools were at risk of being sued by the federal government for being out of compliance with a federal civil rights law so that uh, city leaders and the city of Seattle was forced to take action. Um, busing was implemented. It was not uh, a, a, a popular measure, though it was effective. There are so many uh, Seattle luminaries that grew up in the era of uh, forced busing. Uh, Lynn Shelton, Sir Mix-a-Lot, Lindy West. An article was written in The Stranger sort of explaining, I believe this was published in about 2015 or 16, sort of explaining that that attempt at a forced busing made Seattle a much more cosmopolitan city culturally. So I would have to say, and, and, and I hazard to say this because I haven't uh, done the research specifically on the uh, specific integration of the school sports, but I do know that the integration of our schools as an attempt began in earnest in 1978. Um, it, it, that has been a bumpy and incomplete ride. I mean, I believe it was in 2007 where the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court found that Seattle and uh, Louisville, Kentucky were two of the least integrated school districts in urban America in the United States. Uh, so that uh, we have quite a long way to go on that question, but I think that that, was, that has been a generational uh, contest to make Seattle a genuinely more inclusive city uh, that reached an inflection point at around the same time that the Sonics were going on uh, their title runs in 1978 and in 1979. So we had the spectacle of uh, sports fans cheering for a mostly black team, cheering for, as a matter of fact, a, a UW uh, football program led by a black quarterback uh, at the exact same time that there were sort of uh, white Seattleites anyway were grappling with uh, the long legacy of, of Jim Crow, which extended out of the South and, and into the Jim Crow uh, Northwest, unfortunately.
So Brown versus Board was decided in 1954, the famous racial integration case. And I know for a fact, I just thought of something, there were blacks and white players, for example, at Garfield High School playing basketball together in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So maybe defining when things got integrated might be open to some interpretation, perhaps? You you would definitely have to look at, um, and I think that that's, that's definitely the case. I do remember um, at a, a bill signing for... Uh, House Bill 1474, a uh, bill that was recently passed in the Washington State Legislature that um, was intended as corrective action for the long legacy of residential segregation in Washington State. Jay Inslee uh, had mentioned, um, you know, sort of playing some games in Seattle high schools where Larry Gossett was present, for example. Um, so, yeah, you would definitely have to probably go back and do a lot of the history. But I would say that that en masse and, and in a substantive sense, um, you're probably not going to find a whole lot of racial integration until the schools themselves become racially integrated, which um, took many years after a Brown v. Board, for sure. I'll tell you something. I grew up in that busing era. I started school in the 70s. I remember it very well. Now, kind of an interesting trivial pursuit type question. Seattle was the largest city in the country to desegregate the public schools without a court order. Right. And they... The city definitely did that to avoid a court order. So uh, there's kind of some nuance to the history as well. And that's really what we mean when we talk about um, the unmet promise of urban progress. And on the one side of it, you definitely have uh, a city that did the right thing. And on the other hand of it, you have a city that did the right thing because there were no more options left. Um, And um, certainly that threat of the federal suit was a powerful motivator for action, uh, as it has been for a host of other issues in the city. There's also, well, we're going to move on from the busing subject, we could talk all about that, but there's also an interesting kind of shift where a lot of liberals and progressives, blacks, whites, people of all sorts of ethnicities started questioning busing more by the early 80s or so. So there, there's um, there's that aspect as well to, to busing in Seattle. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Um how do the Seattle Rainiers fit into to the Seattle sports history? The Seattle Rainiers were a famous Pacific Coast League team, and they they played. They definitely had teams before um, racial integration. But just kind of, what, what did you? What are a couple of nuggets you found in your research with the Seattle Rainiers and their history to Seattle? Well, well, they were such an important uh, baseball team. The first episode that comes to mind when I think about the Seattle Rainiers is the. Uh, um, episode in 1938 when federal, local, and city uh, tax agents descended on a civic stadium in Queen Anne and raided uh, the baseball the baseball stadium and the baseball team's coffers uh, because of unpaid uh, tax debts. Uh, the Seattle Rainiers' previous stadium, Dugdale Park, had been burned down by a white supremacist arsonist. Uh, I cover that tail in the third inning of the book. As a result of that stadium being torched, the team signs a deal uh, with the city that says, hey, in exchange for a certain amount of your gate revenues, we'll lease you the ability to play in a Civic Stadium in Queen Anne. The team was unable to meet its financial obligations. There were a number of uh, both federal and local New Deal projects that required quite a bit of public expenditure. So there was really not much of a public appetite for a tax evading baseball team. Uh, And so during a a double, a September uh, 1937 or 38 game between uh, the Rainiers and the visiting, um, I think it was the Sacramento Salons, 
the team gets raided. Um, team officials are trying to hide money in the pockets of uh, the manager. They're stuffing money underneath the bases to hide it from taxmen. Um, and it was a very embarrassing spectacle. So what it makes me think of is as bad as things get with the Seattle Mariners, and things have been pretty dry these last 21 years or so, um, until we see the IRS actually uh, fleece the Seattle Mariners uh, before uh, a nationally televised audience, uh, we, we have to keep our, our heartbreak for the Mariners in perspective and realizing things have gotten pretty bad with our baseball teams historically here in the, in the city. Sean, that's an incredible story that in about 1937 or 38, there were IRS agents that were crashing the uh, Seattle Rainiers game. That's an incredible story. Right, it sure is. Um, and that's uh, covered in the uh, the third. The book is divided up not into chapters, but into innings. So the third inning, which deals with the 1930s, uh, covers that story a bit. Well, you just, you just threw out a very fascinating early event in Seattle sports history that many fans, including myself, had not heard about. Can you throw out another interesting early event or earlier event that a lot of modern fans may not know about that's connected to Seattle sports history? Yeah, I, you know, I begin the book in talking about where Seattle was at in the 1870s, because I felt that there was something very foundational about uh, the city uh, in its early years. And uh, so much of that history has not recalled as often as it ought to be. I mean, we go to a T-Mobile park and we see a stadium that is built uh, next to these great train, train depots. You know, a home run gets blasted and we hear the train blaring. Um, well, in the 1870s, Seattle was a railroad-obsessed city. The railroad was going to be the ticket to international uh, prestige and recognition uh, that Seattle's be Seattleites believed, Seattle settlers anyway, believed that uh, was theirs by divine right. The uh, excitement for the attraction of a railroad terminus coincided at that time with uh, this the um, establishment of the city's first baseball team, a team called the Seattle Alkies, which competed against uh, uh, area, uh, competing area settlements, Port Gamble, Snohomish, uh, Olympia, others, and they did great. Uh, they beat Port Gamble in, in 1877 by a score of, I believe it was 51 to nothing, uh, won a number of other different games uh, at that time and galvanized local support among both working people and uh, sort of Seattle area aristocrats. Um, by the same token, uh, residents of the city of Seattle were quite disappointed to find uh, the city's baseball team, uh, to watch the city's baseball team get defeated uh, at a uh, area celebration for what was supposed to be the arrival of a railroad terminus in October of 1883. Uh, so at the same time that the city does not get the railroad for another, uh, another 15, 20 years, its baseball team is losing. And so there you have kind of the roots of um, the sports heartbreak sort of meeting up with the socio-political heartbreak um, and Seattleites having to deal with that and reckon with it. Seattle PI uh, publishes an article in the aftermath of that game, essentially telling the Seattle baseball franchise, if you can't get your roster in order, you ought to disband as an organization as opposed to embarrass the city. And some of that language, I think, uh, resonates for many people who have watched uh, the Mariners, for example, strike out in free agency these last few years. So uh, there's a lot more, you know, I tend to emphasize the continuity as a historian more. Um, and every historian just, your job is essentially to assess continuity and change over time. Uh, so the continuity to me, especially in a city that I think is lacking a sense of history to the to such an extent as Seattle uh, does often, 
uh, the continuity to me is is very fascinating and something that I focus on a lot in the book. Incredible. Back in the 1880s, there were issues with pro, te pro teams, or I guess you can say uh, quasi-pro teams, whatever, in Seattle, right? Right. So. And and this this perennial question of if you're not going to spend the money to make the roster better or do what it takes to represent the city well, it's better probably not to have a team at all, uh, was the sense in, in, uh, in 1883. And I think that there might be a, few, a good many people who feel that way in 2023 as well. We just threw out some great historical nuggets about the Seattle sports scene in the 1880s and the 1930s. It's just just uh, really fascinating stuff here, Sean. Sean, I, I got something to ask you. And, you know, I read a description of your book, and apparently, I don't want to put words in your mouth, tell me if I'm on the right track, but apparently you have some criticism of the city of Seattle when they do big cleanups for, say, the baseball all-star game in 2023. Um, do I have the general, do I have your general take on that down correctly I, i'll make sure i don't mischaracterize your your point of view. I, I i definitely do take issue with the efficacy of uh homeless the policy of homeless sweeps of homeless encampments as a uh, measure that during the uh, pandemic was recognized by the cdc as one that violated public health guidelines ones that that is a policy that has uh existed in seattle since the 1930s and has not done a whole lot to actually address and alleviate the issue of homelessness in the city. So that is something that definitely comes up as a recurring uh, historical spectacle in the city of Seattle, going all the back, all the way back to the Great Depression. You see it again in April 90, 1995 when uh, the NCAA Final Four men's basketball tournament uh, is hosted by the city of Seattle at the Kingdom. A number of protesters uh, attempt to bring uh, attention to the plight of. Uh, people experiencing houselessness in the city of Seattle, that encampment is swept and all uh, 17 demonstrators are uh, arrested. Um, and so I, I just feel that when we're looking at a similar problem as one that existed in the Great Depression, where uh, Seattle police were authorized to set fire to homeless encampments, um, again, again in 1995, again in, uh, when the uh, city hosted the M MLB All-Star Game, um, if we see that we're sort of deploying the same kind of uh, measure to meet a problem that has existed for 90, 100, 110 years in the city, uh, it might be time to change course. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on that side of it. Um, as far as as far as my um, sort of vantage point on this as a historian. So somebody who I know brought up a point about this, Sean, and you're probably going to challenge this point, but I want to get your point of view of it. This, this uh, person said, well, somebody has a home and they're going to have an event at their home, they're going to get their home cleaned up. They're going to deep clean it. They're going to fix it up. Is it wrong for cities to want to fix up their cities for big events? Oh, I think that there's nothing wrong with a city saying, Hey, we want to put our best face before the world. Who wouldn't want to have uh, a city that looks good, not only to visitors, but to people who are already here. Uh, I think that is a perfectly reasonable ambition what I question is the uh, efficacy of uh, homeless encampment sweeps as a uh, means towards that end and saying, hey, if we want to be a city that is competitive with other cities and actually looks good on a, on a global stage, uh, July, 9th, July of uh, 2022, the New York Times ran an extensive profile on the city of Houston's attempts to uh, address the homeless population. They were able to get housing providers, uh, local government and to a certain extent, large businesses on the same page to say the thing that really 
works to address homelessness as a housing first model, getting people in homes and then having government services to support them in remaining there. Uh, so I think there are a good many ways for uh, Seattle to sort of learn from other cities that have had success in addressing uh, the question of homelessness at the root. Houston, you know, who we maintain a, a not so friendly baseball rivalry with, uh, has been um, on the forefront of this question. And as far as the housing first model, you look at Salt Lake City as well um, as another uh, city that has had some success on this question as well. So I think that it's a perfectly reasonable ambition. And I love the question that um, your your friend posed to you there about, hey, it's isn't it reasonable for us to want to look good? And I think that part of looking good is 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 about being good too. So I think that there's a way that we can we can have it both ways. So you don't have a problem with fixing up cities for big events, but you have issues with cracking down homeless encampments. That's kind of is that your main point of view? Oh, I think I think you know Seattle has Seattle in a lot of ways shines the most when it knows that uh, there's going to be an opportunity for a close up. I mean, you know, we look at great buildings like the uh, Space Needle, the Pacific Science Center. All of those were established with public funds to the end of having a great World's Fair here that people are still, uh, in many ways, talking about. And if not talking about actively, then living in the uh, shadow of and enjoying the legacy of. So I just think that there there's ways to do um, there's ways to look good that also uh, involve doing right by uh, the the citizens of our city. Absolutely. 1970s is an interesting decade in sports in America in general. There's actually a book I saw at the bookstore yesterday about the 1970s sports decade. I may have, may have to put that one on my reading list at some point along with your book. And I want to ask you locally about the impacts of Warren Moon, who was, I believe, the, one of the first African-American quarterbacks in the University of Washington. Lenny Wilkins, who was one of the first African-American coaches in the NBA, and Bill Russell, who was also either the first or one of the first coaches in the NBA. Tell us about the impact of those three gentlemen uh, to Seattle sports then and just long term. It's it's such a fantastic question, Paul, and I appreciate this, this question so much because I think that uh, the 70s really were a time where in the immediate aftermath of the civil rights gains of the 1960s, uh, there was a, a collective cultural awareness uh, that was further along on issues of, of racial progress than it had been at any point uh, in time prior to the nation's history. Um, and so it was at this point in time where we started to see some of the first widely accepted Black superstars who had mass appeal, not only in Seattle, but also nationally. And Warren Moon, I think, is somebody whose political or, or sports career was also an artifact of the politics at the time. Uh, if you remember, uh, the University of Washington had come under significant fire in the 1960s for uh, findings of institutional racism in its football program, a 10-part uh, Sports Illustrated uh, series that ran in 1968 called uh, The Black Athlete, A Shameful Story, uh, highlighted a number of issues in uh, the establishment of racial quotas uh, for certain positions in the UW football program, uh, certain uh, players being penalized for interracial dating in the football program, the use of racial invective in the football program, so that the corrective, uh, part of the corrective measures to make sure that UW did not repeat those mistakes involved uh, having folks on in untraditional, having on African-American players in, in uh, positions that were traditionally denied to them. Quarterback was certainly one of them. Warren Moon struggled in his first couple of years in the city of, of Seattle and in front of UW fans, confessed to Sports Illustrated that he actually played better on the road as a result of uh, some of the um, 
the intolerance that he faced from the city's fans. And then, you know, lo and behold, I think everybody loves a winner. So at about the same time that Lenny Wilkins is uh, paving a trail as, as one of the, the, the first few successful black coaches in the NBA in 1978-79, there goes Warren Moon winning the uh, Rose Bowl against, uh, against Michigan in the uh, 1978 Rose Bowl. So, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't enough for Warren Moon to simply play the position um, and to be, in essence, the Jackie Robinson in many ways of, of college football with, with respect to the quarterback position. He also had to win and he had to do well at it and excel. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of cause for reflection and seeing maybe how that saga has replayed itself in subsequent sports spectacles. But a tremendously impactful figure um, and somebody that I know is is revered and, and many people have very fond memories of um, as a as a as a player and one of the one of the first a real pioneer and one of the first black quarterbacks to excel at that position when many did not believe it was possible. And Lenny Wilkins and, and the late Bill Russell have been certainly groundbreaking figures of professional basketball, too. They absolutely have. Lenny Wilkins uh, received uh, hate mail upon being named the Seattle Sonics' uh, player coach, and I believe this was 1967 or 68, um, is let go for a time, watches um, a team that uh, he stewards in Portland, uh, watches that team win an NBA championship, and Lenny being as competitive as he is when he... Uh, rejoins the Seattle Sonics, makes it his singular mission to make sure that Seattle is not left behind by uh, by Portland. Um, and so, you know, every every I really tried to write a book that um, sort of proceeded as much like a novel as it did a history book. And I think every great novel has compelling uh, characters, storylines that you know duck in and duck out, um, characters that have really strong motivations, a strong sense of place. And I think Lenny Wilkins was definitely one of the more uh, compelling characters, if you will, that uh, I was able to read and research about in the course of, of putting together Heartbreak City. Why well, Lenny Wilkins on my show a couple of years ago. It's just such an iconic figure I have a chance to chat with. And it was it was nice that he, he came on. And I never got Bill Russell on my show, but what a what a, what a what an iconic figure in American history. Um Olivia has an interesting question. I'm gonna try to package it um the right way. We were talking about this question before you came on, Sean. And Olivia is wondering, it's a really fascinating question, how does a fan who believes in social justice, may even be a democratic socialist, or may be a pretty strong critic of capitalism, mm -hmm. reconcile that with being a hardcore pro sports fan, which is this like the ultimate capitalistic institutions? Olivia, with the, a fellow uh, UW um, you know, student, I mean, I was in UW uh, many, many years ago, many years before Olivia. But... I was I was way before you guys. So. Right. And leave it to a Husky to write or or to 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 uh, write and phrase such a great question. Um, when I see sports in Seattle in specific, I see in many ways the triumph of a collective spirit. Most of I mean, it starts with the fact that um, in most of our major leagues, the players are unionized. So that is organized labor that we are watching um, play these games in baseball, football, basketball. Uh, most of our or many of our concession stand workers unionized as well. Uh, often as not, these, these uh, games take place in stadiums that uh, would not have been possible without large gobs of public funding. Uh, we have public transit systems that really serve as feeder uh, lines to and from these stadiums uh, so that it, in one sense, I think there's 
definitely something to the idea. Olivia has really hit on something very important that uh, sports can be hyper-capitalistic in their valorization of individual grit and the individual overcoming adverse uh, circumstances in pursuit of triumph. But I also think that the values of a uh, teamwork and certainly the massive public investment that we see uh, without which our sports would not be possible speak to a different uh, sort of uh, way of, of interpreting and looking at um, sort of what we're seeing. So I definitely tend to emphasize about a lot more the uh, collective nature of many of our sports. And I think that when we're are at our best, uh, that's how we actually tend to function as a, as a society, when we're looking at things from a teamwork perspective and trying to solve problems collectively, uh, we're often a lot better off than we are um, the other way. You bring up something there about all the other capitalistic institutions, the National Football League, the NBA, the NHL, and uh, the MLB, for example, the MLS, all those leagues are capitalist institutions, yet uh, the owners are not afraid to ask for government help frequently. So there's a, there is a little twist there, isn't there? So. Right. I mean, I think I think it's definitely the case that our, our some of our sports leagues are um, some of the, the most shining. I mean, if, if they're a hyper capitalist and they're not socialist, somebody ought to tell them because uh, maybe they would be kicking back a lot of the money that they receive for some of the stadiums. But we wouldn't have it that way because I think that people are, are inspired to see um, collective civic action meet big problems. I mean, we wouldn't have the Seahawks or the Mariners in the city if it weren't for um, dramatic collective action in the form of the passage of the 1968 Forward Thrust Bond Initiatives, which said, hey, in order to become a great city and in order to be a city that's going to compete with other cities, we need great public works. And a public stadium is going to be, a publicly funded stadium is going to be part of that. Um, so I definitely think that there's a, a, a different way of sort of interpreting what we're seeing when we're looking on the field, for sure. But I love that question by Olivia so much. She's a smart young lady. Let, let me let me ask you about, I want to ask about some of the 1990s stadium battles that occurred in Seattle. But I want to kind of ask about something else first. You mentioned how so many stadiums and arenas are publicly funded. But the Seattle Kraken uh, remodel may have involved some tax exemptions, but it didn't involve direct public funding. That's my understanding for the most part. What do you think of the Kraken um, remodel of the key arena, which is now Client Pledge Arena? Um, and also, do you think the Kraken has done a good job reaching out to communities of color and the LGBT communities? It's a, it's a, it's a really, um, a really cool way of sort of framing what the Kraken are about and what they represent to the city. I think about the fact first, I mean, historically, it is the case that the uh, building uh, that became a Climate Pledge Arena was the Seattle Coliseum, and that was built with public funds. Let's be clear about that part of it. Without uh, federal funds, uh, the large influx of federal funds uh, for in advance of the 1962 World's Fair, the Coliseum would not have been built. It is definitely the case that Amazon I believe it was res responsible in 2017 or 18, beginning 2017 or 18 was responsible for the renovation of that facility. Um, and, and I think that what the Kraken individually as a, as a team has sort of been able to uh, tap into um, is a longer hockey history that's existed in the city for over a century. The Seattle Metropolitans actually used to operate the Seattle Ice Arena, um, which was located on Fifth, uh, Fifth Avenue as a community iceplex, when um, when the team wasn't playing there, uh, they would have an orchestra come in. And so you go back and look at advertisements from 1917, 1918, when they were going on Stanley Cup runs, and people were able to sort of just go there and skate. 
Now, the Seattle Ice Arena, and I described this in the first inning of the book, was a segregated arena so that the city was celebrating the Seattle Metropolitans in 1917 and then again in 1919 uh, go on their Stanley Cup runs. But that was uh, all white fans that were uh, enjoying that uh, spectacle because the Seattle NAACP had found that black attendees had been barred entry and discriminated against. It's fortunate to see the crack and understand uh, that we don't want to replicate those aspects of our history, obviously. And um, you're you're struck by the diversity. I mean, some of, I have so many hockey fans in my life who are people of color, and it's kind of funny because growing up, I'm a black kid, even in Seattle, um, hockey was sort of seen incorrectly as this as a white sport or coded as a white sport, which couldn't be further than the truth because it was actually the Mi'kmaq people of um, the area that became Nova Scotia that um, that indigenous nation that that originated hockey. So it's really cool to see us sort of returning to um sort of our our more inclusive roots that I think we tend to forget about um and and the Kraken and seeing as many you know a diverse a fan base as they have uh be united in support of that team uh, has been really awesome to see for sure could you see what the Kraken are doing in, in reaching out and, and being inclusive to all sorts of different like non-traditional hockey communities could you see this become more of a national thing where the NHL becomes a sport with a lot more fans of color, for example, could you see this thing maybe going beyond Seattle? You should hope so, and I, I would I would think that Seattle would be a model for fan engagement. And this is something that actually is is consistent in, in our in our our history as a city. Um, when Seattle fans get behind a team, and this might speak to the question that you asked earlier about what sort of differentiates Seattle from um, some other cities. I mean, there's a there's a an end level fan engagement factor that um, is really, really pervasive and has been for 50, 60, 70 years in the city's history. I mean, um, you know, the Sonics used to set league records for uh, league attendance when they played uh, in the kingdom in the 70, in 1978 and 79. Um, you know, it's disputed about which West Coast city originated the wave, but Seattle was definitely one of the first. Um, you think about the advent of the 12th man, I mean, the belief uh, us along with, I guess, Texas A&M as a college, but in the in the pro leagues, the belief that a fan base can actually impact what happens on the field. Um, and, and, and the Kraken are really a, a part of that a longer history that we have of fan, fan engagement spilling over into something that feels political. You saw it as well with the Sounders and this idea and, and when the team was founded in 2009 that we're actually going to give fans higher firepower um, over management. Um, and so that's not something that that's not common. That's not something that you see in every fan base. Um, and it's definitely something that I think the Kraken are doing to to further and continue um, as far as that legacy of fan engagement that implies uh, political, greater political engagement as well. A lot there. Back in, you know, there was a Sonic Skate movie that came out back in about 2009. I was helping the Save Our Sonics guys back then or people back then. And in the movie, there's a, a writer, Sherman Alexi, and he's a local Seattle writer. He's written a lot of books. And in the movie, Sherman accused a retired Seattle city council member. And to be fair, the city council member later apologized for his remarks, but he felt what the city council member said was racist when the city council member said that basketball lacks cultural value during that Sonic's Arena debate in the 2007-2008 era. Uh, what were your thoughts on that episode? I, I describe that 
that episode at length, actually, in the uh, the extra innings section of the book, the 10th uh, chapter, as it were, I think that that was a very unfortunate um, way of describing a team that had a tremendous, tremendous cultural value to the city and to Black Seattleites in particular. Uh, in the book, I talk about, well, hypothetically, what would it have meant for somebody to have said something similar about the Seattle Storm uh, or the Huskies um, in, in football um, and how that would have landed for the thousands of women and LGBTQ plus fans who had finally seen themselves represented in the arena of sport via the triumph of the Seattle Storm. What that would have meant for young people if somebody had said that the Huskies contribute uh, no cultural value. Um, and so I, I think that it was it was smart of Councilmember Lakata to recant or at least to apologize for those statements. The impact was nonetheless uh, felt. And I think for many Black Seattleites who watched the Sonics depart in uh, 2008, this was a period of time where the Central District was being frittered away and a community that was forged against uh, tremendous odds uh, was evaporating seemingly in thin air. It felt to many Black Seattleites that everywhere you looked, Seattle was becoming a much less Black city. And the departure of the Seattle Sonics, I think, was a figurehead of that um, unfortunate trend. Now, I think there's another side to this history as well that we don't talk enough about, and it's the fact that Seattle was really one of the few uh, cities in the last 30 years to say enough is enough with respect to doling out public funds for uh, billionaire uh, sports leagues. And, you know, I've, I've talked at length, actually, with my uh, good friend and, and mentor, Representative Frank Chop, who was in the state legislature at that time, and said, you know, look, we had we were facing a an economic forecast that was not looking great. I mean, the Great Recession had not hit, but there were early inklings that uh, something was seriously wrong with the housing market, um, both locally and nationally. Uh, there were real uh, expenditures that needed to be made for social safety net spending. Those were going to have to come perhaps at the expense of uh, some of this public state, public funding for some of these arenas. So at the same time that the, you know, we mourn the Sonics and that we, you know, want to see the team come back. Uh, we also have to recognize and be proud of the fact that Seattle was one of the few cities that said um, there are better things for us to be spending money on, especially since we just got done doling out public funds for uh, Stadia for both the Mariners and the Seahawks. So it's a very complicated uh, story, and we have to be able to hold space for a number of different emotions, um, among them being anticipation and a sense of hope that the uh, Sonics are going to come back over the next couple of years, as it seems like they might. You know, this growing up and being in Seattle pretty much my whole life, the, the 1990s stadium battles, which we which you alluded to earlier with the Mariners and the Seahawks, um, definitely big parts of, of of Seattle sports history. Can you just share a a nugget or two about those battles. I, I I know you could probably go on for hours about them, but do you have any just uh, um, like a nugget or two you can share about each one of those battles? Yeah, well, I think about the comparison between the 1995 uh, stadium uh, vote and election for uh, the facility that eventually became what we now know of as T-Mobile Park and comparing uh, the fates and fortunes of that vote with the 1997 stadium measure for uh, the football stadium that eventually became Lumen Field where the Seahawks and the Sounders play. The, the sense at the time, and to summarize for readers or for listeners who might not be familiar with this history, uh, uh, 
Seattle King County voters vote down a proposal for a stadium in September of 1995. The Mariners go on an improbable win streak, capture the division, make it all the way to the ALCS and sort of force the hand of the state legislature to call a special session um, in order to authorize funds uh, to build the stadium that voters had uh, just a few months prior or a few weeks prior uh, had voted down. Uh, and so technically that was an unsuccessful, if we're talking about just electorally, that was an unsuccessful vote. More people said they did not, by a very slim margin, more people said that they did not want to see a new baseball stadium than said that they want to see one. The uh, subsequent vote for the 1997 facility, uh, which was heavily funded by Paul Allen, was successful. A slim majority of voters said we do want to publicly fund this facility. And part of the reason why was because it was a stadium that paid for itself in uh, various uh, taxes and lodging fees and things of that nature. So as opposed to a straightforward corporate giveaway, as it was seen in the case of the baseball stadium, having a stadium that actually uh, did something to sort of pay its own way was a lot more palatable to voters. And I think that says something about the Seattle electorate, where it was at that time and perhaps where it was now and saying, hey, we want to have, have circuses, but we don't want to have the circuses at the expense of bread. Uh, we want to have uh, these great sports spectacles and we want to be competitive with other cities, but we also want to make sure that we're taking care of our basic priorities. So I think that uh, the, the city at that point in time revealed itself to be a very reasonable electorate, at least if you're comparing those two uh, Stadia votes as a sort of snapshot about the mood of the electorate um, in the uh, the middle 1990s. One thing I do want to share, Sean, as part of the history of the 95 Mariners um, stadium effort is technically the state legislature did put together a different package than 95 King County vote. It, it did. It was a slightly different package they put together. Right. It was. that. That's definitely the case. I was just comparing sort of the, I mean, the, the mechanics of the special session could have been and actually has been a, a book topic on its own. Art Thiel, um, who's really kind of the one of the deans of Seattle sports writers, and I was fortunate enough to have him blo uh, blurb uh, or give a blurb for my book, uh, has written a story or written the uh, definitive book about that 1995 team. Uh, but just comparing the two elections in the September 1995 election versus the election that took place in 1997, um, very interesting sort of for people who are real wonks about, I mean, public space, public uh, funds, I mean, you you could really um, sort of dig quite deeply and and find quite a lot of um, uh, lessons about what uh, public voters uh, found palatable versus not in comparing those two uh, elections, for sure. Or definitely knows the stuff. Definitely good CL sports historian. I got a couple more questions, Sean, and uh, you've been so generous of your time. And um, I recommend to my listeners that they read Sean's new books. Heartbreak City, Seattle Sports, and the Unmet Promise of Urban Progress. Um, okay, I've asked these two questions to about every guest since late 2019. You're a sports guy, a historian, an activist. You're you're a perfect guy for me to ask these two questions to. Who is a living sports figure? It could be a commissioner, an owner, a player, somebody who's still with us in the sports world you would enjoy interviewing or spending time with. And who's a deceased sports figure in history you would enjoy, you would have enjoyed spending time with? Living you know, I'm, I'm, it's really cool to hear that you had the opportunity to speak with uh, Lenny Wilkins. I think he would be at or near the top of that list. Uh, I would have to say deceased. Um, you know, Helene, Helene Madison is, is somebody who I did not know anything about for the most part before going into researching this book, but learning about her as Seattle's first individual uh, homegrown sports superstar 
a swimmer who really put the city on the map in her triumphs in the 1930 uh, national uh, championships in Miami, and then again in the 1932 uh, Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Um, somebody who led a very hard life uh, in her later years after sort of the glitz and glamour of, of her career as a youth athlete had, um, had faded, uh, but somebody who Uh, symbolizes, I think, kind of the heart and the tenacity that make us attracted to our game. So I would definitely have to say uh, Helene, the swimmer Helene Madison, who was a, a Wallingford, a product of Wallingford, who learned to swim not too far from where I'm sitting right now at uh, Green Lake, uh, was somebody who was a tremendously inspirational figure. And I think somebody who got it on a fundamental level about what it meant to represent uh, Seattle through sports. Uh, there was some talk at the time of the uh, uh in advance of the uh, summer olympics in los angeles that maybe she was going to defect uh from the washington athletic club and instead swim for the los angeles athletic club she says that's bosh if i can't represent seattle then i won't swim and so i think in this era of pre-agency where you know players have to exercise their their you know labor rights to to get the best deal for their um their talents um Certainly nothing to criticize about that. It's also the case that uh, many fans sort of grow attachments to many athletes that end up leaving pretty quickly. I think it was pretty cool to see somebody who understood what it meant to represent a city as an individual athlete uh, a century uh, before, almost a century before our time and many decades before the era of free agency. I think it was pretty cool to see. Or to, well, to I love you sharing Lenny Wilkins as your living sports figure you love to chat with. I love you sharing Miss Madison as a deceased sports figure. And reason why I like those two questions, I get such phenomenal answers. Um, okay. Um, you research in your research of your book, you you did a lot of research about Seattle history. Who's mm -hmm. a another deceased person in Seattle history you would have loved to have spent time with? And who's a living figure in Seattle um history? Could be a community leader, a player, a politician you would enjoy spending time with and interviewing. I gotta say that. Bertha Knight Lands, the first uh, woman mayor of a major city uh, who served as a Seattle mayor uh, in the middle 1920s, um, is the first person that comes to mind as somebody that I would probably want to uh, sit and talk with. I mean, Jim Ellis, a tremendous civic visionary for people who are not familiar with the work that he did to found the Metro Agency, which cleaned up uh, our area waterways, the work that he did to um, you get the kingdom or funds for the, the kingdom authorized in the 1968 uh, forward thrust elections. Uh, somebody who experienced some, own, some heartbreak of his own in the sense that he wasn't able to get Seattle voters to get behind a, a subway proposal, which was really kind of his dream for the era. But somebody who never let uh, setbacks and disappointments sort of stall out his uh, ambition to make Seattle a more inclusive, more cosmopolitan place. Uh, Jim Ellis actually had passed away, uh, if I'm not mistaken, late, I believe it was in October of 2019. Um, and at that point in time, you know, it, it was such a tremendous felt loss because I I really just regretted the fact that I never had the opportunity to to sort of sit and meet with him and in his later years as I sort of learned about his significance to the city. So those are those are the two deceased that I, that I think about. Great names. Um, as far as living, I mean, there's so many, many of whom I've actually had the the opportunity to 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 meet and and talk with. I think about um, you know, now County Council Member uh, Teresa Mosqueda, somebody who's been a, a tremendous inspiration for 
so many um, people in the city as well. Um, uh, there, there are almost too many to name uh, living, but I think that's that's one name that really, really sticks out to me at this this particular moment right now. You probably would turn down a couple hours of Bruce Harrell, though, would you, the current mayor? <laughs> you know, it'd be fun to watch a game with Bruce Harrell. Um, I know, I know he's an avid Husky fan, and um, I, I suppose I'll look. I'll leave it at this ball. I think that we would have quite a bit to talk about. I'll, okay. I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. He's definitely a more uh, cent definitely a, a centrist Democrat in a lot of ways. You guys probably have some some different opinions on some stuff. So, but um, um, you would agree, Slade Gordon, the late Slade Gordon, U.S. Senator, definitely played a big role in uh, Seattle sports, in particular on some of the baseball stadium issues. Would you agree, Slade had a big role, didn't he? Absolutely, he sure did. And I think that Slade, in some ways, represented the last uh, generation of reasonable Republicans in the United States, frankly, he's one kind of the last of a, um, of a, uh, a pedigree that has unfortunately become too, too few and far between. I mean, you look at some of the policies that somebody like Slade Gordon, even to a certain extent, somebody like Richard Nixon, who was a Republican, but founded the Environmental Protection Agency and actually tries to recruit Jim Ellis to be the first director of that in 1970. Many of his policy proposals, you know, seem downright social democratic uh, relative to sort of what um, somebody Nixon signed Title Nine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so you you have a lot of those, a lot of that kind of. So you you see that there's yeah. been kind of a descent in our in our political discourse in general over the last generation or two, um, and wondering what it would look like to uh, not have to live in times that were, I think, as strange as as they are now. Sean, this may be one of my last questions. It, it, this is a, this is probably a tougher one, but I, I want to get your take on this. So uh, congratulations to Sean. There was an excerpt in his about his new book in the Seattle Times today. And there was a they focused on the um, the Seattle Sonics from 77 to 79. So pretty cool that Sean's uh, book had a had an excerpt today in the Seattle Times. I was reading it online before I interviewed you. And you describe Spencer Haywood and Lenny Wilkins in your book as tokens of integration, mm -hmm. providing audiences with a figment progress on the field of play. It mm -hmm. ends with under pressure, progressivism faded away. Mm -hmm. I see that some Seattle Times readers uh, in the reader comment section really challenged uh, some of your thoughts on that. Why don't you elaborate more on, on how you feel Lenny and Spencer were tokens of integration? Well, I think that it has to do with whether or not we believe social progress is about uh, certain individuals, exceptionally well-talented individuals in the public eye, uh, whether or not progress has to do only with sort of furthering their individual careers, or whether or not the work of social progress is a collective effort that has to do with bettering communities as a whole. Certainly, I would never say that representation is unimportant, you know, as a Black Seattleite, I look at uh, and take so much resolve and inspiration from uh, their careers. I could imagine, you know, if you were somebody who's not used to seeing yourself represented in sports from any in in sports or in public affairs in any walk of life, you would feel the same way about somebody like Sue Bird, or you would feel the same way about uh, somebody like uh, Megan Rapinoe. Maybe feel the same way about somebody like Benny Betty Lennox, who was the 2004 NBA Finals uh, WNBA Finals MVP. But I also think that uh, maybe communities shouldn't have to be quite so resilient. Maybe communities shouldn't 
should be able to have uh, some of the same supports. Maybe communities ought to be able to have um, a society that is dedicated to the, the collective betterment of um, folks from beleaguered walks of life. So that when I, when I describe them as sort of figments of integration, what I'm talking about is the fact that um, we have a lot further to go than, than we think we do oftentimes. And a lot of those um, sort of individual stories of individual success have a way of uh, making us think we're further along on that journey than we might actually be. A lot there. We could talk for hours. Well, um, I'm going to end with this, with two more questions. Uh, the first one is, can you share anything else about your book that, that you want let my listeners to, to know more about? I, I like to give my interviewees a little for maybe something we haven't hit on today that you want to share about your book that we haven't hit on. Yeah. I, you know, my attempt was to really write the uh, first uh, comprehensive uh, history of Seattle and its relationship to its sports. There's not another book, at least not one that's written by a single author that um, sort of exists. And so anytime that you're the one who goes uh, first in a sense, uh, you have the ability to sort of look at a very, very fresh body of research that hasn't been uh, so picked over and teased over. Um, so it was just a joy to write and research um, and and really grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about it with folks like you, Paul, who I know really care about the subject, as I'm sure that uh, many of your listeners do as well. Well, real honored to have you on, Sean. Let's definitely stay in touch. And you've been a filmmaker, an author, an activist. What is in the future for Sean Scott? I'm just trying to stay busy. Just trying to stay busy. Yeah, I'm going to be at uh, the Museum of History and Industry uh, in early January talking about uh, who the most politically impactful Seattle athlete in our city's history was. And so that's going to be a great event. I look forward to seeing a lot of folks there. I should have asked you that question. That's that's a great question there. Um, you could make a case for for Spencer Haywood, what he did with with uh, breaking in as a um, underclassman. Oh, God, that's a that's a great question. Uh, right. Sue Bird, what she's done on women's rights and Megan Rapinoe, all that. Boy, right. that, there's a lot there with that question. So we're gonna try to get it answered uh, that night. So hope to see a lot. No, of Russell, my gosh, there. That's yeah. a, that's a that you've given me a, a question to ask uh, some some guests in the future. Well, Absolutely. Sean, again, uh, uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to whichever one you celebrate. Have a great one, and uh, thank you for coming on my show. I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much.